All right, you can open up your Bibles to James. We're going to be in James chapter 2. It took us a whole semester, but we finally made it to James chapter 2. But, hallelujah. I don't even know how to feel about that. Uh, You'll find out very quickly that we will move much faster through James chapter 2 than we took to go through James chapter 1. But James chapter 2 is our text for tonight. Uh, Let's start off in James 2, verse 1, and I'll read our passage, and then we can pray. James chapter 2, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in bright clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you, and they themselves drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin, being convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit a murder, or sorry, he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we thank you that we get to open up your word again. And even though it is painful to look into your word because your word convicts us of sin in ourselves, we thank you for it. And I pray that you would give us hearts ready to see what your word has to show us about ourselves and about our faith and the nature of it. And I pray that we would be ready and willing to receive your word and not harden our heart against it, but receive it with thankfulness and gratefulness and repentance. Pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. You see here, we're talking about something called personal favoritism. See it there in verse 1. You can also look over uh, in the, the second half of the chapter, or the second half of our section, you can see he talks about making distinctions, um, all of these sorts of things. Uh, verse 9, you show partiality. What is this? What does it mean to have this thing called personal favoritism? What is personal favoritism, and why is it wrong? I'm going to give you a little definition of personal 
favoritism. You could think of personal favoritism this way. It is to assign value to someone based on outward, superficial, worldly standards rather than inner, spiritual, or character standards. It is assigning value to someone based on external things, external strengths, or weaknesses that they have, rather than assigning value based on spiritual standards. It is to love those who are lovely. It is to do good to someone because you know they will do good to you. This will benefit me. It is to try to please someone to maybe change the way you act just to please someone because you know they have money, as you see here. It is to judge the inner man simply on the basis of what they look like on the outside. This is personal favoritism. It is valuing the superficial, the external, what something uh, what somebody has on or how they look. And you can, you can kind of pick this up real quick from this little description that James gives us. Look at this. You see in verse 2 and 3, he paints this picture of two people that come into the same meeting. Two people that apparently maybe have not come into the meeting place before. Maybe this is the church. Uh, there's some debate there. They've, they've come into the gathering of believers, and one of them looks nice got flashy bright garments on he's got a ring on his finger and no that doesn't mean he was married uh it, it probably is a sign of wealth to have rings on showed that you had power or strength if you think of like the the story of the prodigal son the father puts the ring on his finger and that maybe is giving him back like family responsibilities or authority with that ring and sometimes people would have lots of rings on their fingers and that would show how significant or important they were. And I even read somewhere where people would kind of borrow rings in order to look impressive for other people because having a ring on was so special. It's similar to how we, you know, drive around in really fancy cars because we want people to be impressed with us. Or we wear really expensive wristwatches because we want people to be impressed with us. Or maybe it's the same thing that we see in First Peter chapter 3 where women are doing their hair with all this gold and um, braided hair and, and focusing on external things rather than the internal person of the heart. It's, uh, it's easy to impress somebody with the way you look. You can quickly impress people. By the way, it's a good thing sometimes. If you go to a job, you should wear a tie and something like that because you want to impress people because it is easy to impress people with how you look. But there's another person that comes in. This person is considered a poor person. This isn't just like a field laborer. This is, this is a word that refers to someone who is impoverished and probably smelly and stinky, right? Two people come in, and one person, you just feel how this works, right? You say, uh, you, you can sit up here in the front row, right over here. This is a good spot. It's, it's good. It's fitting you. You are an important person, evidently, based on all the rings on your finger. So I'm going to put you in the front row because that's where important people sit. But then the other person comes in, you're like, oh man, uh, this guy's going to guy's gonna probably distract people from paying attention with this smell and things like that, maybe. So let's put him over here in the corner where nobody will notice him. 
Um, let's put them in the, the women's cry room so nobody can see. No, that, that's not what they do. But, you know, let's, let's get them out of sight so we're not distracted by this individual. Right? Matter of fact, it's, it's very emphatic, you know. You, you sit over here in the good spot, but, but you, eh, you go over here. Matter of fact, it's kind of humorous. You, you sit down by my footstool. You could make an argument that the, the wording there could be, you sit down under my footstool. All right? I, I'm gonna, you're, you're so insignificant, I, I'm going to kind of refer to you as being less than a footstool to me, which is, of course, referring to someone who is just the worst of the worst, right? That's what's happening here. Somebody, come, two people come in, and distinctions are made between two people solely on the basis of how they look before getting to know them at all. And, we, and we're seeing here that someone is treated as more important based on external standards, right? You look important, I'm going to treat you important. You look unimportant, I'm not going to treat you important. But, but look at this, right? James says, my brothers, verse 1, you should not hold your faith in the glorious Lord and do this thing at the same time. You cannot be doing this. This is a contradiction of your faith. Matter of fact, notice what he says in verse 4. In making these distinctions, you have become judges with, notice that, evil thoughts. This is an evil thing that you are doing. You shouldn't do this. This is evil, and it's betraying evil desires in your heart and in your mind. Now, before we get into this, obviously there's a wider context to this. Chapter 2, verse 1, is continuing on in the same theme that we saw at the end of chapter um, 1, uh, 19 through 27. This whole section has been talking about how you know your faith is true. How do I know my faith is true? Well, I examine it according to God's word. Let's just do a quick overview of James really quick. First off, uh, oh, why should I rejoice in trials? Well, because trials strengthen my faith. But only if I pray to God in them for wisdom. What does wisdom help me do? Wisdom, remember this, helps me think eternally. Wisdom looks forward to the crown, right? Wisdom knows that temptation doesn't come from people around me, but it comes from inside of me. And wisdom, of course, helps me to trust everything that comes from God. That's the first part of James. The second part of James is, how do I know that my faith is true? How do I know? Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. What are you, what are you, what are you listening to when you're uh, you know, slow to anger? You are listening to God's word because God's word is my mirror so that I can do it. And then true religion, this is last week, remember that? True religion controls the mouth, helps the weak, and turns away from the world. And that is what James is going to talk about now. How do I know my faith is true based on the reality of my faith? And that leads us, brings us to this chapter. This is silly, but for some reason I started doing this with my family, and so now I have to do this action every single time I do it. But for this next section, I want you to remember this, okay? Don't show personal favoritism. <laughs> All right? That is it. If you can remember that, you can remember what James chapter 2 is about. Don't show personal favoritism. I want to hear that kissing. I want to hear that kissing, okay? Uh, okay, never mind, don't do it. Uh, 
And then, of course, we'll add one more onto this. We'll uh, don't show personal favoritism. And then, of course, add to that uh, one more section. Uh, love for others keeps God's law. Okay? Well, those are the, those, that's the part of James we're going to talk about. So don't show personal favoritism. <laughs> love for others keeps God's law. All right. So that's where we are in James we are in the section that's talking about how we can know whether our faith is true. We examine it. We put it under test. We even thank God for the trials and temptations and troubles that he puts in our life because it allows us to test our faith and know whether it is true. And the point here is that true faith, the, the basic point of our passage, true faith must not judge based on personal favoritism. True faith cannot have personal favoritism. What, is, what kind of faith is it? What kind of faith is it? What kind of faith do you have that can hold faith in Christ and also have personal favoritism? What kind of faith is that? That's the question we're going to answer tonight. We're going to look at, we're going to look at just a few evidences of what uh, uh, personal favoritism is, and I'm just going to give them to you three Three evidences of your faith, if your faith has personal favoritism. And once again, the main question here, the question we're trying to answer is, what kind of faith do you have if you have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have a faith that demonstrates personal favoritism? I'll get back to that. I'll answer that question in the end. But for now, let's look at uh, three evidences. Um, Evidence number one, if 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 you have personal favoritism in your life, this is what you have evidence of in your faith. Uh, number one, your faith downplays God's choice. If you show personal favoritism, your faith is a faith that downplays God's choice. Downplays, of course, means to de-emphasize something. To, to argue that it doesn't really matter that much. To treat it as insignificant. Your faith downplays God's choice. Oh, what's happening here? What's going on here? Verses 2 and 3. Um, we, we see all of this happening with this, these distinctions that are being made. Matter of fact, chapter 4 kind of says this. You are making distinctions among yourself, and you're making distinctions based on outward impressiveness. <coughs> and we understand this. We understand why it's tempting to make these distinctions. And even if you get into the background of what it meant to be a Christian in those days, you'd understand this even more, Right? By making these distinctions, by treating this person as more important than that person, you know, this person might be able to supply some of your needs. Man, if I befriend this person, they may be able to give me something that I really need, right? If I treat this person well, they may have the kind of influence that can one day get me out of trouble. Or if you're in the first century world where being a Christian kind of made you always in trouble, maybe this person will have influence in our society and will you know, ease up the problems we're having. If we treat this person well, some of our problems could go away. This, these trials and these troubles that we face in our life can be lessened or removed. But then, but then notice in verse 4, there, there are some evil thoughts going on in here. You, when you show personal favoritism, are manifesting evil thoughts. Thoughts. And you would only know this if the Word of God showed it to you. What kind of evil thought is this? It's a thought in your head, and this is, this is what we're talking about. This is the evil thought. You think to yourself, the kind of people that are important to me are different 
than the kind of people that are important to God. That is the evil thought number one, you could say. You begin to say, the kind of people that are important to me are different than the people that are important to God. He says this in verse 5, right? Didn't God choose, notice that word, choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? God chose people that have nothing to offer God. God chose people that are unimpressive. Those are the kind of people he chose, but when you show personal favoritism, when you treat someone who maybe has influence or money as more important, you are basically saying the the kind of people God chooses are not the same kinds of people that I choose. I'm going to show personal favoritism for this person because I'm thinking and choosing differently than God. Now, just... Just a reminder of the background here, the vast majority of Christians, especially Jewish Christians, in the early days of the church were poor. Or they were about to be, right? If you became a Christian, you were either poor or about to be poor. How do I know that? Well, number one, I know that a lot of poor people are in the church. You can look at Acts and see that record. But then also, too, if you became a Christian and were a Jew, you basically, essentially, were telling your family, I believe in the Messiah, and you guys can just, you know, shun me, right? You might lose your job. You might lose your family. A wife could lose her husband. Kids could be disowned by their parents. Parents could be disowned by their kids. You were about to lose family structures, maybe. You maybe are about to lose some you know, some financial securities, you are about to be poor or you are already poor. That is why, that is why the gospel of Jesus Christ oftentimes doesn't attract people who are rich because you lose more, right? But but we get this sense also throughout the New Testament. Paul, of course, you remember this, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. He's reminding the Corinthians of this. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were mighty, right? The early church, the vast majority of the early church were poor people. And once again, the, the question for you is, are you going to love the kinds of people that God loves? God's people in general, tend to be the more ordinary kind of people, not the extraordinary kind of people. They don't have a lot going for them in this world. They tend to not. They are ordinary, often very weak people who know that they need God. Are you going to love the kinds of people God loves? Or are your standards of loveliness different than God's? Are your standards of importance and significance different than God. That is the question. There's a few uh, points of clarification here when we talk about God's choice. Just to clear this up, number one, this doesn't mean that all poor people are automatically saved. Doesn't mean that at all. Can't mean that. I could argue from our very passage, right? You are still required to be rich in faith, right? The, the, perhaps the reason why the, the poor people can, can, can cling to Christ is because they have nothing else to cling to, right? They need God, and they know that there's nothing else in this world that they have that they will lose. They would rather have Jesus. But notice also, it's required in verse 5, of you, not just to be poor, not just to be weak, but you also have to love him. Notice what it says there, right? 
Did not God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith, right? Faith is required, but notice also heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him, you must love Christ. And newsflash for you, you don't have to be rich to love money. Matter of fact, the poorer you are, the more problems you might have with money. You still have to love Christ more than anything else. You still have to hold on to Christ by faith. This is not a statement of God automatically loving all people who are poor or automatically giving salvation to the poor. It's just simply a statement of reality, right? This is your world. Most Christians are ordinary. Most Christians don't have a lot going for them. The rich, if anything, have blinders on them because they don't need, they don't need anything in this life. They are blinded to their eternal spiritual condition because of the comfort that they feel in this life. But that's number clarification number one. Clarification number two, this doesn't also mean that all rich people are automatically lost, right? This is also not saying that all rich people are automatically lost. You can have faith in Christ Jesus. You can love the Lord God and have money. You just don't love money more than God. Matter of fact, notice in chapter 1, verse 10, right? The rich man is to boast in his humiliation. James there, if you remember right, is saying, hey, listen, if you're rich, you boast in the fact that your money won't actually mean anything in 80 years from now. You boast in the fact that you soon will die the same death that everybody else on this earth will die, and you will have to answer to God himself. But you boast in the fact that you too cling to the same Jesus Christ that even the poorest man on earth clings to. You, you boast in your humiliation, actually, because you know upon your death you have maximum joy, better than any joy you could have in this life. You boast in your limits. You boast in your weakness. You boast in the fact that your money can leave you in any second. That is what the rich person does. But that's a Christian's response. So you can be saved and be rich at the same time. It's not automatically either way. But I want to make one more point of clarification here. This also doesn't mean that we are to automatically favor the poor above the rich, just automatically favor. I would think that that's making the exact same mistake, right? Matter of fact, in our day and age, it's almost spiritual to favor the poor very, uh, over the rich, right? Oh, look at how spiritual I am. I always am favoring the poor. The Bible uh, is commanding us not to show personal favoritism in any direction, right? You are not to treat someone important or or, or disregard them based on their external appearance. You are to love them as they love God and your Savior, Jesus Christ. We are called also to honor some individuals above others. We are called to honor parents. We're called to honor our spiritual authorities. We're called to honor older people, elders. So we are to make distinctions in some ways, but we don't want to make the opposite mistake and say, hey, we're just going to disregard we're, di we're going to disregard a rich person who loves Christ for a poor, poor person who hates Christ. We're not going to make that automatic flip. But personal uh, favoritism, bottom line, downplays God's choice, right? It says, I am going to attach my own value system to who I think is important. I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to hold the people that God calls important, important to me, right? 
I'm not going to love the people that God loves. I'm going to love the people that I want to love. That is personal favoritism, and it evidences a faith that downplays God's choice. Let's, let's look at uh, evidence number two. Evidence number two of your faith, if your faith has personal favoritism, it's an evidence that your faith delights in worldly strength. Your faith delights in worldly strength. You downplay God's choice, and you delight in worldly strength. Of course, the word delight is an affectional term. It refers to kind of your inner leading desires that um, lead you to action, that lead you to obedience. You do what you delight in. That is evident all the time. Now you'll see here in 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7, that uh, James is going to ask some questions. And it's neat in Greek because he asks these questions with a, in a specific way that, that assumes the answer will be yes. It's like he's cornering them and he's, he's asking them a question that they can only answer in the affirmative, right? You guys do know that this is what happens when you do that, right? Oh, yeah. It's kind of like me giving you a horrible, one of those horrible would-you-rather questions, right? Would you, rather, would you rather be eating ice cream for a week on a beach somewhere, or would you rather be stranded by yourself in the Sahara Desert for a week? Which one? Uh, this one, I guess, right? It's a trap question, right? I have to answer yes and as I answer yes, I am increasingly convicted of the worldliness, the evil of my desires. James is saying, why are you so elevating? Why are you so delighting in these kinds of people who just have this external impressiveness to them? Verse 6, verse 6, right? Uh, you dishonor the poor man. Is it not, here's one of those questions, is it not the rich who oppress you? and they themselves drag you into court. Apparently this was happening, because James could say this, and he knew that they would have to say, yes, the rich are doing that. They are oppressing us, and they are dragging us into court. But essentially what he's asking is this, aren't you honoring those who really don't care about you at all? They, they have no interest in you, and you are so interested in them. It, it, it's like trying to be cool. For the cool kid, right? Maybe if I'm really cool, that cool kid will stop making fun of me to all of their friends, right? They don't care about you at all. They're the ones mocking you behind your back. Why are you trying so hard to impress them? They have no love for you at all, but maybe you're tempted to think, if I can just get them to like me, all of my problems will go away. But they don't even like you at all. They have shown no evidence of being caring or kind or compassionate. All they will do is they'll use you and then they'll lose you. That is who these people are. They are dragging or pressing you and dragging people into court. Then the second question, verse 7, also looking for an affirmative um, answer is, do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? Right, probably referring to the Christians 
call to faith in Christ Jesus. Every time in the New Testament epistles, when you see that word called, it refers to the effectual calling of God that always answers in yes to the gospel, right? You have been called to faith in Christ Jesus, and these people, of all the groups of people in the earth, seem to be the ones who like to mock Christ the most. And James is essentially saying here, um, aren't you loving those who hate Christ? That's exactly what you're doing. You are loving, you are cherishing, you are elevating, you are seeking to honor those very people that are hating Christ. Blaspheming, of course, is a, uh, a term for trying to um, get someone to curse or, or cursing the name of Christ. Paul himself said when he was an unbeliever in Saul that he, he forced his, he dragged men and women out of their houses and he tried to cause them to blaspheme the name of Christ. This was happening all the time. Rich, powerful Jews were trying to squelch this Christian sect in the bud uh, by causing the Christians to blaspheme the name of Christ. Now listen, we talk about delighting in worldly strength. It, it, it always happens. It, it, it is, but it's always, it is always exciting when you hear of someone that you know coming to faith in Christ Jesus. That's always an exciting thing. But there is this thing that the Christian community seems to do all the time in our day and age. We just go crazy when a sports star or a celebrity names the name of Christ. It, it's, it's, it's as if, it's as if in one, in one short interview where they name the name of Christ, they have done more for Christianity uh, than, than any other person in the world, right? It's like, man, they are so impressive. People are going to hear them say nice things about Jesus, and then they're going to like Jesus because this person's so impressive, right? Now, once again, I, I love to hear people confess Christ and glorify Christ. I love that. I really do. But we get really, really excited when people like Kanye West, to name one, uh, or football stars, or politicians, or something like that, name Christ. Because what are we thinking is going to happen? We think, wow, they have so much influence. People will love Jesus more now because they are Christians, right? Matter of fact, I was just, I was just thinking in my mind this, uh, this afternoon as I was preparing this message, what would, I, what, what would we today think like, man, this is going to turn millions of people to Christ, right? Who would have to come to faith, right? Last time I checked, um, NFL ratings are up a lot uh, because of someone named Taylor Swift. What if she became a Christian? All of the influence, all of the Swifties would automatically have to become Christians, right? Or... Or what if Elon Musk became a Christian? Think of all the good things he could do. Surely we should favor them more. And once again, I'm not against <laughs> preaching the gospel to all people, but I'm saying sometimes we delight in the world's kind of way of thinking, right? This person has more strength. This person will have more influence. Hey, newsflash for you. Don't ever expect the world to change their mind about Jesus based on who's giving the message. They are never going to be impressed by the message, more impressed by the message than they will by the Savior. And if you are looking for someone to be more impressive than the message of Jesus Christ itself, you are making a horrible 
Aaron. Matter of fact, the world will never change its mind about Jesus, regardless of how popular your messenger is. The world will endure the Christian's message and confession of faith as long as that person is working or winning or serving the world in some way. But as soon as that person fails, the world will drop them like spoiled goods. I love it when people come to faith in Christ Jesus. But I'm not putting my hope in impressive messengers who have influence. The bottom line is, this faith that downplays the people that God chooses seems to also delight in the world's way of doing things, right? We, we need somebody impressive to preach Christ. But this is delighting in the world's strength. Let's look at our last evidence, evidence number three. Um, if you have personal favoritism, it is evidence of this in your faith. Your faith demonstrates no love for God. Your faith demonstrates no love for God. Demonstrates, of course, refers to proving something through evidence. If your faith has personal favoritism, it demonstrates no love for God. This is not a very surprising conclusion. You can't love the world and love God at the same time. Uh, 4 verse 4 talks about this. You cannot be seeking to be friends to the world and have friendship with God. Such Worldly Christianity, as we've already seen in chapter 1, makes you a double fool as well. You are double-minded in all you do, and you're a double fool, right? Because uh, you do not love God, uh, God does not really love you, and the world doesn't love you either, right? You are a double fool if you're trying to be a worldly Christian, trying to live an impressive Christian life and also be impressive to the world. You are a double fool. But, but follow this, follow this uh, thought process for this idea of your faith demonstrates no love for God. Personal favoritism uh, demonstrates uh, itself not just to be a small or insignificant blind spot in your life, but according to James here in chapter 2, it is a massive sin. It is a massive sin that manifests little or no love for God. That's what personal favoritism and a life ruled by the, the favor of others manifests. It, it manifests no love for God. It's not a small little sin. It is a big sin. Let, let's work this out. Number one, uh, think, think through this. This is just like a process of thoughts as I'm thinking through this out loud to you, right? Okay, number one. Uh, love for God is demonstrated, number one, through obedience, right? We all agree with that, right? You demonstrate love for God through obedience. Jesus said this himself in John 14, 15, right? You, you know you love me because you obey my commandments, right? Love for God is demonstrated through obedience. That's, that's how we know we demonstrate love for God. But we also know this second point, love for God is also demonstrated through my love for my neighbors. That's how I also demonstrate my Love for God. Matthew 22, Jesus sums up the greatest commandment. He, he sums it up, right? And it's a two-part package, right? What is the greatest commandment? I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, my soul, and my mind. And the second is like this, and I love my neighbor as myself. This is the greatest commandment. To love your neighbor demonstrates your love for God. Look at uh, chapter 2. 
chapter 2, 8 and 9, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin, being convicted by the law as a transgressor. James, of course, picks up this idea um, of keeping God's law. You can't keep God's law while not loving your neighbor, right? You can't love the Lord God, obey his commandments, and not be loving your neighbor. Or to say it another way, real love towards God always manifests itself horizontally. You, you cannot say you love God and not love other people around you. And by the way, remember how Jesus defines a neighbor. Uh, Luke, uh, Luke 19 defines a neighbor this way. It's the person in your life near you who needs mercy from you. It is the person in your life near you who needs your mercy and your kindness, who who will take and take and take maybe from you all the days of your life. That is your neighbor. They will be the one in your life who will give you one thing, less time in your day and less weight in your wallet. That is somebody who is your neighbor. And those are the people that the love of God can be manifested through you, the people that are difficult in your life. When you pick and choose how you're going to love God, though, you demonstrate uh, a false or phony love for God. When you pick and choose how God's love is going to be manifested in your life, you demonstrate a phony love for God. You actually demonstrate that your standards are different than God's because you don't love God's standards. And you also demonstrate that uh, your works aren't for God, but for yourself, right? I'm here to serve me. I'm here to love me. I'm not here to love God or serve God. That's what you demonstrate when you pick and choose. Another, another thought here that we could go on. Uh, love for God is also demonstrated in your attitude towards any and all sin in your life. And this is where James is getting into how grievous a sin uh, partiality is. Your love for God not only is known by your obedience, your love for your neighbor, but also in your attitude towards any sin that's exposed in your life. You know how much you love God. If there's a part of your life that you are not seeking and resolving to seek Christ-likeness in, there's a problem. There's a problem in your confession and in your love for God. You, you can't love God and love sin at the same time. Notice 2.10, what 2.10 says. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Notice, notice what's happening here. I, I think what's happening here. Notice... Notice there's a cold-heartedness to this personal favoritism that this person has. There's a cold-heartedness. This person can say, James is being uh, probably ironic here, but this person could even say, hey, listen, I have kept every single command of God except one. Isn't that good enough? Is, Is that true love towards God when you can say, I have kept every single command of God except treating this person better, right? I'm a Christian, I just hate my brother. Can you say that that's real love towards God? No, that evidence is a false love for God because it's not horizontal and it's not towards your neighbor, the difficult one in your life. The love of God confronts your lovelessness towards people around you. And notice, when you are merciless, God will treat you 
without mercy as well. You see that at the very end, verse 13. Judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. I think of Matthew 18, where Jesus himself says, God will actually put stubborn, loveless Christians through a lot of punishment to get their attention, right? Because you cannot claim love for God and not have love for your neighbor at the same time. It is actually antithetical to the gospel. By the way, it's, it's important to remember that this is a great evangelism verse, right? This is a great evangelism verse. God's law is not there to be used by us to impress ourselves with all of the things that we're doing to stack our way to God. God's law has one purpose in your life, and that is to show you how you fall short, how you sin. Even, even if you sin in one way, that is enough sin to drive you to Christ because the law of God shows how you have broken all of them. Notice, you, you, you can't just pick and choose how you're going to sin against God. That shows no love for God and no real concern about your sin. Jesus himself, or, or James himself says, uh, verse 11, uh, He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, look at this. You're still a transgressor of the law, right? You are still breaking God's law. And if you're okay with that, it shows that you don't really love God. That the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't mean very much to you. If you can be fine breaking one little rule. You break, you break all of God's law if you break one of God's law. One of God's laws is enough to send you all the way to hell. Reminds me of a time when I was living my dream, pretending to be the next um, senior uh, center fielder for the Minnesota Twins in downtown Minneapolis. I was practicing batting in the driveway. And I have, I have a very loud imagination in my head, I could hear the thundering metronome all around me as I was swinging at the ball and watching it sail out of the park, a dome. It doesn't sail out of a dome. It bounces off the ceiling and falls down. But you get the idea. Well, anyway, I didn't have a ball, but I didn't want to just use my imagination. That's no fun. So I used a rock. And I was just swinging, hitting those rocks right down the driveway. And I'll still remember to this day the sound that kind of broke into the, the screaming, cheering in my head. And it was when I swung at one of those little pebbles, the driver's side window of our 15-passenger Dodge uh, van shattered. And I'm aiming this way. It's over there. And at first, I didn't realize what happened. And silly, silly kind of story. I run into the house. I tell my mom, well, what do you think I told her? I didn't tell her, Mom, I was stupidly <laughs> hitting a rock with a bat. Didn't say that. That was too stupid. So instead, what I said was, Mom, front window's broken. <laughs> I did confess it later. But all to say, the point is, now, now what did I break there? Technically, my little rock only hit a small part of the window. I didn't break all of it, but it all collapsed. That's kind of what James is saying here. You break one part, the whole thing collapses, right? You have become a transgressor of God's law. You have broken God's law. And, re and regardless of how you paint it, regardless of how you try to dress it up, 
you are still a transgressor of the law. And if that doesn't matter to you, if you can keep on sinning against other people and have no compassion towards them, that makes you a, a, a free sinner against God. Once again, your love for God demonstrates itself through an attitude towards any and all sin in your life. Is this sin against God? It matters to me if it's against God. One other, one other thought here. Love for God also demonstrates itself in our freedom. In our freedom to keep God's word, to obey God's command. Uh, love for God also demonstrates itself through freedom. You, you see this here in verse 12, right? Speak and so act as though uh, those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. What's going on there? Oh, uh, Of course, we are righteous before God through Christ. Of course, we fulfill God's law through the Spirit. And of course, even in our obedience, we will do it imperfectly all the days of our life. But notice here, uh, verse 8 and verse 12 imply, matter of fact, verse 12 says, the law that brings about freedom, the law that produces freedom. Uh, James is saying here, you as a Christian, through the power of the Spirit, because of the righteousness of Christ, you can fulfill and keep the law. Matter of fact, you can, you can actually speak and act as those who are freed or, or who are going to be judged by the law of freedom. What, what is this talking about? I would say, number one, the Christian can obey. The Christian can even begin to keep, even imperfectly. The Christian can fulfill the law. The Christian can pursue love for God and love for their neighbor through the power of the Spirit. The Christian can do that because of what Christ has done and because of the Spirit inside of you. But notice also what this says, because, once again, I would translate it, be judged by the law that brings or produces freedom. The Christian's obedience, the Christian's obedience actually protects them from greater trouble, from greater sin. It brings about this freedom in their life. Uh, when you are ignoring sin in your life, it is bringing uh, shame and slavery into your life. And it's the foolish kind of slavery because you, you know that you've been liberated from sin and the slavery that sin brings. But when you follow Christ and obey Christ and love him and delight in him and pursue his way and rely on his spirit to do it, you actually have a freedom, or sorry, have a law in your life that brings about freedom to your life. A question for you, why did God give the law to the Israelites? Did he give it to them while they were in Egypt to help them work their way out of Egypt? No, he gave it to them at Mount Sinai so that they would never return to the slavery of sin or to the slavery of Egypt because of their sin. That's always why God gives us instructions, so that we can walk in the law that brings freedom. Following Christ, obeying Christ, brings you into true freedom, true joy and true freedom. But that brings us back to our opening question. What kind of faith is it if you have personal favoritism with it? You, you can probably answer for yourself. It's a faith that downplays God's choice. It's a faith that delights in the worldly version of success. And it's a faith that demonstrates no love for God. It is a phony faith. It's a worldly faith. It's a heart that's set on evil. It is 
It is a life in chapter 3, verse 14, of bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, arrogance, lying against the truth. It is, verse 16, jealousy and selfish ambition existing and their disorder and every evil practice. It is a life that leads to further and further disorder and evil practice. And notice, it is a wisdom not coming down from above. It's a faith not from above, but it is from this earth, and it's natural, and it's demonic. This is a phony faith, a faith that's trying to love the world and love God at the same time. Now, this hurts. This hurts to think about, because personal favoritism is so easy. But why is James doing this? He's doing this to show you you through the mirror of God's word, so that you can say, that is who I am, but that is not who I want to be anymore. Uh, the true Christian sees their sin, repents of it, turns from it, rejoices in Christ their Savior who paid the penalty for all of their sins and turns with a fierce ferocity and joy to repentance and turn from their sin. Right? You see yourself through the mirror of God's word so that you can turn and change. And that's why James shows us ourselves. So that we can respond. And so that we can change. Notice one little last thought. Isn't it interesting that in this context of personal favoritism, James refers to Jesus as the Lord of glory. If there is ever a place to refer to Christ as the Lord of glory, would this really be it? Of course, this is a title referring to Jesus' deity, his strength, his power perhaps. But what really is James saying here? He is saying, by favoring the world systems and the world standards, you are forgetting the glories of Jesus Christ. And where have you seen the glories of Jesus Christ most on display? You've seen them not in strength or in power, but in the weakness of a dying Savior for your sin on the cross. That is where you saw the glory of God most manifested. That is where... The, the length of God's grace and God's mercy are clearest and most easily defined. That is where the, the power of God's wrath is most evident. That is where the love of God is most displayed. This is the glory of Christ. And when you are choosing personal favoritism, you are ignoring the glorious Christ. But if you receive this message as a message from God in his word, receive it in corrective terms, and remember that your sin, even your sin, as heinous as personal favoritism, that's so ignorant of God and ignoring of his goodness, is also atonable and can also be found at the cross of Jesus Christ as well. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for your love and for your grace and for this word and this message from you, and we pray that we would, we would receive it not just as a man speaking it, but as it truly is from your word itself. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.